Welcome to another episode from 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This one, titled Mary Postgate, is from one of my favorite authors, Rudyard Kipling. And if you recall, you'll find one of his famous works, Ricky Ticky Tavi, in our archives. Rudyard Kipling lived an extraordinary life, being born in Bombay, India in 1895. He was returned to England by his parents at the age of five to live in a boarding house, where he was badly treated. And when he came of age, attended a military school, and then returned to India, becoming a prolific and well-known writer, finally winning a Nobel Prize in Literature in 1907. He was to sell his collection of short stories for a large sum of money and traveled the world, meeting Mark Twain in America, where he lived for four years, then taking in Japan before returning to England. This story, Mary Postgate, has been called Kipling's best war story, and it's about a spinster whose son was killed during a trial flight in the war. She happens upon a downed German pilot and is overcome with a raging anger toward him, probably the same way that Kipling felt when he lost his own son during World War I in the Battle of Luz. And now, Mary Postgate by Rudyard Kipling. Of Miss Mary Postgate, Lady McCausland wrote that she was thoroughly conscientious, tidy, companionable, and ladylike. I'm very sorry to part with her, and shall always be interested in her welfare. Miss Fowler engaged her on this recommendation, and to her surprise, for she had had experience of companions, found that it was true. Miss Fowler was nearer sixty than fifty at the time, but though she needed care, she did not exhaust her attendant's vitality. On the contrary, she gave out stimulatingly and with reminiscences. Her father had been a minor court official in the days when the Great Exhibition of 1851 had just set its seal on civilization made perfect. Some of Miss Fowler's tales, nonetheless, were not always for the young. Mary was not young, and though her speech was as colorless as her eyes or her hair, she was never shocked. She listened unflinchingly to everyone, said at the end, How interesting, or how shocking, as the case might be, and never again referred to it for she prided herself on a trained mind, which did not dwell on these things. She was, too, a treasure at domestic accounts, for which the village tradesmen, with their weekly books, loved her not. Otherwise she had no enemies, provoked no jealousy even among the plainest. Neither gossip nor slander had ever been traced to her. She supplied the odd place at the rector's or the doctor's table at half an hour's notice. She was a sort of public aunt to very many small children of the village street, whose parents, while accepting everything, would have been swift to resent what they called patronage. She served on the village nursing committee as Miss Fowler's nominee when Miss Fowler was crippled by rheumatoid arthritis and came out of six months' fortnightly meetings, equally respected by all the cliques. And when fate threw Miss Fowler's nephew, an unlovely orphan of eleven, on Miss Fowler's hands, Mary Postgate stood to her share of the business of education as practiced in private and public schools. She checked printed clothes lists and uniternized bills of extras, wrote to head and house masters, matrons, nurses, and doctors, and grieved or rejoiced over half-term reports. Young Wyndham Fowler repaid her in his holidays by calling her gatepost, posty, or packthread, by thumping her between her narrow shoulders, or by chasing her bleeding round the garden, her large mouth open, her large nose high in the air, at a stiff-necked shamble, very like a camel's. Later on he filled the house with clamor, argument, and harangues as to his personal needs, 
likes and dislikes, and the limitations of you women, reducing Mary to tears of physical fatigue, or when he chose to be humorous, of helpless laughter. At crises, which multiplied as he grew older, she was his ambassadress and his interpretess to Miss Fowler, who had no large sympathy with the young, a vote in his interest at the councils on his future, his sewing woman, strictly accountable for mislaid boots and garments, always his butt and his slave. As she said to Miss Fowler, it was most vexatious. But the war took everything. It took the rector's son who was going into business with his elder brother. It took the colonel's nephew on the eve of fruit farming in Canada. It took Mrs. Grant's son, who, his mother said, was devoted to the ministry. And, very early indeed, it took Wynne Fowler, who announced on a postcard that he had joined the Flying Corps and wanted a cardigan waistcoat. He must go, and he must have the waistcoat, said Miss Fowler. So Mary got the proper sized needles and wool, while Miss Fowler told the men of her establishment, two gardeners and an odd man, aged sixty, that those who could join the army had better do so. The gardeners left. Cheap, the old man, stayed on, and was promoted to the gardener's cottage. The cook, scorning to be limited in luxuries, also left after a spirited scene with Miss Fowler and took the housemaid with her. Miss Fowler gazetted Nellie, Cheap's 17-year-old daughter, to the vacant post, Mrs. Cheap to the rank of cook with occasional cleaning bouts, and the reduced establishment moved forward smoothly. Wynne demanded an increase in his allowance. Miss Fowler, who always looked facts in the face, said, He must have it. He must have it. His chances are he won't live long to draw it, and if 300 makes him happy... Wynne was grateful and came over in his tight-buttoned uniform to say so. His training center was not 30 miles away, and his talk was so technical that it had to be explained by charts of the various types of machines. He gave Mary such a chart. "'And you'd better study it, Posty,' he said. "'You'll be seeing a lot of them soon.' So Mary studied the chart, but when Wynne next arrived to swell and exalt himself before the womenfolk, she failed badly in cross-examination and he rated her as in the old days. "'You look more or less like a human being,' he said in his new service voice. "'You must have had a brain at some time in your past. "'What have you done with it? "'Where'd you keep it? "'A sheep would know more than you do, Posty. "'You're lamentable. "'You're less used than an empty tin can, "'you dowy old cassowary. "'I suppose that's how your superior officer talks to you?' "'said Miss Fowler from her chair. "'Ah, Posty doesn't mind.' Wynne replied. Do you, Packthread? Why? Was Wynne saying anything? I shall get this right next time you come, she muttered, and knitted her pale brows again over the diagrams of Taubes, Farmans, and Zeppelin planes. In a few weeks the mere land and sea battles which she read to Miss Fowler after breakfast passed her like idle breath. Her heart and her interest were high in the air with Wynne, who had finished rolling, whatever that might be, and had gone on from a taxi to a machine more or less his own. One morning it circled over their very chimneys, alighted on Veg's Heath, almost outside the garden gate, and Wynne came in, blue with cold, shouting for food. He and she drew Miss Fowler's bath chair, as they had often done, along the Heath footpath to look at the biplane. Mary observed that it smelt very badly. Posty, I believe you think with your nose, said Wynne. I know you don't with your mind, now what type's that? I'll go and get the chart, said Mary. You're hopeless. 
"'You haven't the mental capacity of a white mouse,' he cried, "'and explained the dials and the sockets for bomb-dropping "'till it was time to mount and ride the wet clouds once more. "'Ah!' said Mary as the stinking thing flared upward. "'Wait till our flying corps gets to work. "'Wind says it's much safer than in the trenches.' "'I wonder,' said Miss Fowler. "'Tell Cheap to come and tow me home again.' "'It's all downhill. I can do it,' said Mary. "'If you put the brake on.' "'She laid her lean self against the pushing bar, "'and home they trundled. "'Now be careful you aren't heated and catch a chill,' "'said overdressed Miss Fowler. "'Nothing makes me perspire,' said Mary. "'As she bumped the chair under the porch, "'she straightened her long back. "'The exertion had given her color.' and the wind had loosened a wisp of her hair across her forehead. Miss Fowler glanced at her. "'What do you ever think of, Mary?' she demanded suddenly. "'Oh, Wynne says he wants another three pairs of stockings, as thick as we can make them. "'Yes, but I mean the things that women think about. "'Here you are, more than forty... forty-four, said truthful Mary. "'Well, and well, well,' Mary offered Miss Fowler her shoulder as usual." "'And you've been with me ten years now.' "'Let's see,' said Mary. "'When was eleven when he came? "'He's twenty now, and I came two years before that. Hmm, "'Must be eleven. Eleven, and you've never told me anything that matters in all that while. "'Looking back, it seems to me that I've done all the talking. "'I'm afraid I'm not much of a conversationalist. "'As Wynne says, I haven't the mind. "'Let me take your hat.' "'Miss Fowler, moving stiffly from the hip,' "'stamped her rubber-tipped stick on the tiled hall floor. "'Mary, aren't you anything except a companion? "'Would you ever have been anything except a companion?' "'Mary hung up the garden hat on its proper peg. "'No,' she said after consideration. "'I don't imagine I ever should, but I've no imagination. "'I'm afraid.' "'She fetched Miss Fowler her eleven o'clock glass of Contrexville. That was the wet December when it rained six inches to the month, and the women went abroad as little as might be. Wynne's flying chariot visited them several times, and for two mornings he had warned her by postcard. Mary heard the thresh of his propellers at dawn. The second time she ran to the window and stared at the whitening sky. A little blur passed overhead. She lifted her lean arms towards it. That evening at six o'clock there came an announcement in an official envelope that 2nd Lieutenant W. Fowler had been killed during a trial flight. Death was instantaneous. She read it and carried it to Miss Fowler. I never expected anything else, said Miss Fowler, but I'm sorry it happened before he had done anything. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The room was whirling round Mary Postgate, but she found herself quite steady in the midst of it. Yes, she said. It's a great pity he didn't die in action after he had killed somebody. He was killed instantly. That's one comfort, Miss Fowler went on. But Wynne says the shock of a fall kills a man at once, whatever happens to the tanks, quoted Mary. The room was coming to rest now. 
She heard Miss Fowler say impatiently, But why can't we cry, Mary? And herself replying, There's nothing to cry for. He has done his duty as much as Mrs. Grant's son did. And when he died, she came and cried all morning, said Miss Fowler. This only makes me feel tired, terribly tired. Will you help me to bed, please, Mary? And I think I'd like the hot water bottle. So Mary helped her and sat beside, talking of Wynne in his riotous youth. I believe, said Miss Fowler suddenly, that old people and young people slip from under a stroke like this. The middle-aged feel it most. I expect that's true, said Mary, rising. I'm going to put away the things in his room now. Shall we wear mourning? Certainly not, said Miss Fowler, except, of course, at the funeral. I can't go. You will. I want you to arrange about his being buried here. What a blessing it didn't happen at Salisbury. Everyone, from the authorities of the Flying Corps to the rector, was most kind and sympathetic. Mary found herself for the moment in a world where bodies were in the habit of being dispatched by all sorts of conveyances to all sorts of places. And at the funeral, two young men in buttoned-up uniforms stood beside the grave and spoke to her afterwards. "'You're Miss Postgate, aren't you?' said one. "'Fowler told me about you. He was a good chap, a first-class fellow, a great loss.' "'Great loss,' growled his companion. "'We're all awfully sorry.' "'How high did he fall from?' Mary whispered. "'Pretty near 4,000 feet, I should think, didn't he? "'You were up that day, monkey.' "'All of that,' the other child replied. "'My bar made 3,000, and I wasn't as high as him by a lot.' "'Then that's all right,' said Mary. "'Thank you very much.' They moved away as Mrs. Grant flung herself weeping on Mary's flat chest under the lynch gate and cried, I, I know how it feels. But both his parents are dead, Mary returned as she fended her off. Perhaps they've all met by now, as she escaped towards the coach. I've thought of that too, wailed Mrs. Grant, but then he'll be practically a stranger to them. Quite embarrassing. Mary faithfully reported every detail of the ceremony to Miss Fowler, who, when she described Mrs. Grant's outburst, laughed aloud. Oh, how Wynne would have enjoyed it. He was always utterly unreliable at funerals. Do you remember? And they talked of him again, each piecing out the other's gaps. And now, said Miss Fowler, we'll pull up the blinds and we'll have a general tidy. That's always done us good. Have you seen to Wynne's things? Everything, since he first came, said Mary. He was never destructive, even with his toys. They faced that neat room. It can't be natural not to cry, Mary said at last. I'm so afraid you'll have a reaction. As I told you, we old people slip from under the stroke. It's you I'm afraid for. Have you cried yet? I can't. It only makes me angry with the Germans. That's a sheer waste of vitality, said Miss Fowler. We must live till the war's finished. She opened a full wardrobe. Now I've been thinking things over. This is my plan. All the civilian clothes can be given away. Belgian refugees and so on. Mary nodded. Boots, collars, gloves. Yes, we don't need to keep anything except his cap and belt. They came back yesterday with his flying corps clothes. Mary pointed to a roll on the little iron bed. Ah, but keep his service things. Someone may be glad of them later. Do you remember his sizes? Five feet eight and a half, thirty-six inches round the chest. 
but he told me he's just put on an inch and a half. I'll mark it on a label and tie it on a sleeping bag. So that disposes of that, said Miss Fowler, tapping the palm of one hand with the ringed third finger of the other. What waste it all is. We'll get his old school trunk tomorrow and pack his civilian clothes. And the rest, said Mary, his books and pictures and the games and the toys. And the rest. My plan is to burn every single thing, said Miss Fowler. Then we shall know where they are and no one can handle them afterwards. What do you think? I think that would be much the best, said Mary. But there's a lot of them. We'll burn them in the destructor, said Miss Fowler. There was an open-air furnace for the consumption of refuse, a little circular four-foot tower of pierced brick over an iron grating. Miss Fowler had noticed the design in a gardening journal years ago, and had had it built at the bottom of the garden. It suited her tidy soul, for it saved unsightly rubbish heaps, and the ashes lightened the stiff clay soil. Mary considered for a moment, saw her way clear, and nodded again. They spent the evening putting away well-remembered civilian suits, underclothes that Mary had marked, and the regiments of very gaudy socks and ties. A second trunk was needed, and after that, a little packing case, and it was late next day when Cheap and the local carrier lifted them to the cart. The rector luckily knew of a friend's son, about five foot eight and a half inches high, to whom a complete flying corps outfit would be most acceptable, and sent his gardener's son down with a barrow to take delivery of it. The cap was hung up in Miss Fowler's bedroom, the belt in Miss Postgate's, for, as Miss Fowler said, they had no desire to make tea party talk of them. That disposes of that, said Miss Fowler. I'll leave the rest to you, Mary. I can't run up and down the garden. You'd better take the big clothes basket and get Nellie to help you. I shall take the wheelbarrow and do it myself, said Mary, and for once in her life closed her mouth. Miss Fowler, in moments of irritation, had called Mary deadly methodical. She put on her oldest waterproof and gardening hat and her ever-slipping galoshes, for the weather was on the edge of more rain. She gathered fire lighters from the kitchen, a half-scuttle of coats, and a faggot of brushwood. These she wheeled in the barrow down the mossed paths to the dank little laurel shrubbery where the destructor stood under the drip of three oaks. She climbed the wire fence into the rector's glebe just behind, and from his tenant's rick pulled two large armfuls of good hay, which she spread neatly on the fire bars. Next, journey by journey, passing Miss Fowler's white face at the morning room window each time, she brought down in the towel-covered clothes basket on the wheelbarrow thumbed and used Henty's, Marriott's, Levers, Stevenson, Baroness Horses, Garvis's, Schoolbooks, and Atlases, unrelated piles of the Motorcyclist Magazine, the Light Car Magazine, and catalogs of Olympia exhibitions, the remnants of a fleet of sailing ships from nine-penny cutters to three-guinea yacht, a prep school dressing gown, bats from three and sixpence to twenty-four shillings, cricket and tennis balls, disintegrated steam and clockwork locomotives with their twisted rails, a gray and red tin model of a submarine, a dumb gramophone and cracked records, golf clubs that had to be broken across her knee, like his walking sticks, and an assegai, photographs of private and public school cricket and football elevens, and his OTC on the line of march, Kodaks and film rolls, some pewters, and one real silver cup for boxing competitions and junior hurdles, sheaves of school photographs, Miss Fowler's photograph, 
her own which she had borne off in fun, and, good care she took not to ask, had never returned. A play-box with a secret drawer, a load of flannels, belts, and jerseys, and a pair of spiked shoes unearthed in the attic. A packet of all the letters that Miss Fowler and she had ever written to him, kept for some absurd reason through all these years, a five-day attempt at a diary, framed pictures of racing motors in full Brooklyn's career, and load upon load of indistinguishable wreckage of toolboxes, rabbit hutches, electric batteries, tin soldiers, fret-saw outfits, and jigsaw puzzles. Miss Fowler at the window watched her come and go, and said to herself, Mary's an old woman. I never realized it before. After lunch, she recommended her to rest. I'm not in the least tired, said Mary. I've got it all arranged. I'm going to the village at two o'clock for some paraffin. Nellie hasn't enough, and the walk will do me good. She made one last quest round the house before she started, and found that she had overlooked nothing. It began to mist as soon as she had skirted Veg's Heath, where wind used to descend. It seemed to her that she could almost hear the beat of his propellers overhead. But there was nothing to see. She hoisted her umbrella and lunged into the blind wet till she had reached the shelter of the empty village. As she came out of Mr. Kidd's shop with a bottle full of paraffin in her string shopping bag, she met Nurse Eden, the village nurse, and fell in to talk with her, as usual, about the village children. They were just parting opposite the Royal Oak when a gun, they fancied, was fired immediately behind the house. It was followed by a child's shriek dying into a wall. "'Accident!' said Nurse Eden promptly, and dashed through the empty bar, followed by Mary. They found Mrs. Garrett, the publican's wife, who could only gasp and point to the yard, where a little cart lodge was sliding sideways amidst a clatter of tiles. Nurse Eden snatched up a sheet drying before the fire, ran out, lifted something from the ground, and flung the sheet round it. The sheet turned scarlet, and half her uniform, too, as she bore the load into the kitchen. It was little Edna Garrett, aged nine, whom Mary had known since her perambulator days. "'Am I hurted bad?' Edna asked, and died between Nurse Eden's dripping hands. The sheet fell aside, and for an instant before she could shut her eyes, Mary saw the ripped and shredded body. "'It's a wonder she spoke at all,' said Nurse Eden. "'What in God's name was it?' "'A bomb,' said Mary. "'One of the Zeppelins?' "'No, an aeroplane. "'I thought I heard it on the heath, "'but I fancied it was one of ours. "'It must have shut off its engines as it came down. "'That's why we didn't notice it.' "'The filthy pigs!' said Nurse Eden, "'all white and shaken. "'See the pickle I'm in? "'Go and tell Dr. Hennis, Miss Postgate.' Nurse looked at the mother, who had dropped face down on the floor. She's only in a fit. Turn her over. Mary heaved Mrs. Garrett right side up and hurried off for the doctor. When she told her tale, she asked her to sit down in the surgery till he got her something. But I don't need it, I assure you, said she. I don't think it would be wise to tell Miss Fowler about it, do you? Her heart is so irritable in this weather. Dr. Hennis looked at her admiringly as he picked up his bag. No, don't tell anybody till we're sure, he said, and hastened to the Royal Oak, while Mary went on with the paraffin. The village behind her was as quiet as usual, for the news had not yet spread. She frowned a little to herself, her large nostrils expanded uglily, and from time to time she muttered a phrase which Wynne, who never restrained himself before his womenfolk, had applied to the enemy. Bloody pagans! 
They are bloody pagans. But, she continued, falling back on the teaching that had made her what she was, one mustn't let one's mind dwell on these things. Before she reached the house, Dr. Hennis, who was also a great constable, overtook her in his car. Ah, oh, Miss Postgate, he said. I wanted to tell you that that accident at the Royal Oak was due to Garrett's stable tumbling down. It's been dangerous for a long time. It ought to have been condemned. I thought I heard an explosion, too, said Mary. You might have been misled by the beams snapping. I've been looking at them. They were dry-rotted through and through. Of course, as they broke, they would make a noise just like a gun. Yes, said Mary politely. Poor little Edna was playing underneath it, he went on, still holding her with his eyes. And that and the tiles cut her to pieces, you see? I saw it, said Mary, shaking her head. I heard it, too. Well, we cannot be sure. Dr. Hennis changed his tone completely. I knew both you and Nurse Eden are perfectly trustworthy, and I can rely on you not to say anything, yet at least. It's no good to stir up people unless... Oh, I never do, anyhow, said Mary, and Dr. Hennis went on to the county town. After all, she told herself, it might, just possibly, have been the collapse of the old stable that had done all those things to poor little Edna. She was sorry she had even hinted at other things, but Nurse Eden was discretion itself. By the time she reached home, the affair seemed increasingly remote by its very monstrosity. As she came in, Miss Fowler told her that a couple of aeroplanes had passed half an hour ago. I thought I heard them, she replied. I'm going down to the garden now. I've got the paraffin. So, armed with the longest kitchen poker, she left. It's raining again, was Miss Fowler's last word but I know you won't be happy till that's disposed of. It won't take long. I've got everything down there, and I put the lid on the destructor to keep the wet out. The shrubbery was filling with twilight by the time she had completed her arrangements and sprinkled the sacrificial oil. As she lit the match that would burn her heart to ashes, she heard a groan or grunt behind the dense Portugal laurels. Cheap, she called impatiently, but cheap with his ancient lumbago in his comfortable cottage be the last man to profane the sanctuary. Sheep, she concluded, and threw in the fuse. The pyre went up in a roar, and the immediate flame hastened night around her. How Wynne would have loved this, she thought, stepping back from the blaze. By its light she saw, half hidden behind a laurel not five paces away, a bare-headed man sitting very stiffly at the foot of one of the oaks. A broken branch lay across his lap, one booted leg protruding from beneath it. His head moved ceaselessly from side to side, but his body was as still as the tree's trunk. He was dressed. She moved sideways to look more closely, in a uniform something like Wynne's, with a flap buttoned across the chest. For an instant she had some idea that it might be one of the young flying men she had met at the funeral, but their heads were dark and glossy. This man's was as pale as a baby's, and so closely cropped that she could see the disgusting pinky skin beneath. His lips moved. What do you say? Mary moved towards him and stooped. Lady, 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 he muttered, while his hands picked at the dead wet leaves. There was no doubt as to his nationality. It made her so angry that she strode back to the destructor, though it was still too hot to use the poker there. Wynne's book seemed to be catching well. She looked up at the oak behind the man. Several of the light upper and two or three rotten lower branches had broken and scattered their rubbish on the shrubbery path. 
on the lowest fork a helmet with dependent strings showed like a bird's nest in the light of a long tongue flame. Evidently, this person had fallen through the tree. Wynne had told her that it was quite possible for people to fall out of airplanes. Wynne told her, too, the trees were useful things to break an aviator's fall, but in this case the aviator must have been broken or he would have moved from his queer position. He seemed helpless except for his horrible rolling head. On the other hand, she could see a pistol case at his belt, and Mary loathed pistols. Months ago, after reading certain Belgian reports together, she and Miss Fowler had had dealings with one, a huge revolver with flat-nosed bullets, which latter, Wynne said, were forbidden by the rules of war to be used against civilized enemies. They're good enough for us, Miss Fowler had replied. Show Mary how it works. And Wynne, laughing at the mere possibility of any such need, had led the craven, winking Mary into the rector's disused quarry and had shown her how to fire the terrible machine. It lay now in the top left-hand drawer of her toilet table, a memento not included in the burning. Wynne would be pleased to see how she was not afraid. She slipped up to the house to get it. When she came through the rain, the eyes and the head were alive with expectation. The mouth even tried to smile. But at the sight of the revolver, its corners went down just like Edna Garrett's. A tear trickled from one eye, and the head rolled from shoulder to shoulder, as though trying to point out something. Cassie! Tu Cassie! It whimpered. What do you say? said Mary, disgustingly, keeping well to one side, though only the head moved. Cassie! It repeated. Chemerens! Le médecine! Doctor! Nein, said she, bringing all her small German to bear with the big pistol. Ich haben der Tod Kindergesen. The head was still. Mary's hand dropped. She had been careful to keep her finger off the trigger for fear of accidents. After a few moments waiting, she returned to the destructor where the flames were falling and churned up winds charring books with the poker. Again the head groaned for the doctor. Stop that, said Mary, and stamped her foot. Stop that, you bloody pagan. The words came quite smoothly and naturally. They were Wynne's own words, and Wynne was a gentleman who for no consideration on earth would have torn little Edna into those vividly colored strips and strings. But this thing hunched under the oak tree and had done that thing. It was no question of reading horrors out of newspapers to Miss Fowler. Mary had seen it with her own eyes on the Royal Oak kitchen table. She must not allow her mind to dwell upon it. Now Wynne was dead, and everything connected with him was lumping and rustling and tinkling under her busy poker into red-black dust and gray leaves of ash. The thing beneath the oak would die, too. Mary had seen death more than once. She came of a family that had a knack of dying under, as she told Miss Fowler, most distressing circumstances. She would stay where she was till she was entirely satisfied that it was dead, dead as dear Papa in his late eighties. Aunt Mary in 89, Mama in 91, Cousin Dick in 95, Lady McCausland's housemaid in 99, Lady McCausland's sister in 1901. Wynne buried five days ago, and Edna Garrett still waiting for decent earth to hide her. As she thought, her underlip caught up by one faded canine, brows knit and nostrils wide, she wielded the poker with lunges that jarred the grating at the bottom and careful scrapes round the brickwork above. She looked at her wristwatch, was getting on to half-past four, and the rain was coming down in earnest. 
T would be at five. If it did not die before that time, she would be soaked and would have to change. Meantime, and this occupied her, winds things were burning well, in spite of the hissing wet, though now and again a book back with a quite distinguishable title would be heaved up out of the mass. The exercise of stoking had given her a glow which seemed to reach to the marrow of her bones. She hummed. Mary never had a voice to herself. She had never believed in all those advanced views, though Miss Fowler herself learned a little that day of women's work in the world, but now she saw there was much to be said for them. This, for instance, was her work, work which no man, least of all Dr. Hennis, would ever have done. A man at such a crisis would be what Wynne called a sportsman and would leave everything to fetch help and would certainly bring it into the house. Now a woman's business was to make a happy home for a husband and children. Failing these, it was not a thing one should allow one's mind to dwell upon. But, stop it, Mary cried once more across the shadows. Nine, I tell you, ich haben der Tod, Kindergasen. But it was a fact. A woman who had missed these things could still be useful, more useful than a man in certain respects. She thumped like a pavior through the setting ashes at the secret thrill of it. The rain was damping the fire, but she could feel, it was too dark to see, that her work was done. There was a dull red glow at the bottom of the destructor, not enough to char the wooden lid if she slipped it half over against the driving wet. This arranged, she leaned on the poker and waited, while an increasing rapture lay hold on her. She ceased to think. She gave herself up to feel. Her long pleasure was broken by a sound that she had waited for in agony several times in her life. She leaned forward and listened, smiling. There could be no mistake. She closed her eyes and drank it in. Once it ceased abruptly. Go on, she murmured half aloud. That isn't the end. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classy Short Stories and Tales. You can catch all our shows and archives at our home site at 1001storiespodcast.com and at podcatcher sites like iTunes and podbay.fm. This show, as well as 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, previews every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, although it takes iTunes about a half an hour to catch up. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>